What do failure, loss and tragedy have to teach us about being human? How might we live in hope and truth despite our wounds? And why must we venture beyond ourselves to console others? In this podcast, it is an honour to speak with Professor Michael Ignatieff about the human tradition of consolation. We explore what religious traditions, the lives of past thinkers and statesmen, and Michael's own experience in active politics have to teach us about the need for consolation, to live in an imperfect world in solidarity with each other. Welcome to Beaconsfield Podcast, everyone. Um, this is a real honour for me today to be speaking with Professor Michael Ignatieff. Uh, Michael is one of the world's leading public intellectuals. He's an historian, writer, professor, and former politician serving as leader of the Liberal Party of Canada from 2009 to 2011. He's the author of many critically acclaimed books, including The Needs of Strangers, Isaiah Berlin, Fire and Ashes, and Scar Tissue, a novel shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 1993. He's also held senior academic posts at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, King's College, Cambridge, and at the Universities of Toronto and British Columbia. And he's currently a professor of history at Central European University, where he served as president and rector from 2016 to 2021. Professor, thank you so much for being here with me. Nice to be here, Jack. This is a, a really interesting conversation because I was walking around feeling a bit sorry for myself last November when a, a goal I had set for myself sort of fell through and I picked your book off the shelf um, in its blue cover on consolation. And it's a wonderful meditation on loss, grief, defeat, but also on hope and solidarity. And it's going to be um, really interesting to discuss the book with you today. Professor, I thought we could start by really asking you why you chose to write about consolation. What brought you to this topic? I think, Jack, it began by accident. I, I went to a um, weekend in uh, Utrecht to give a speech about justice and uh, politics in the Psalms. And over the course of that weekend, I gave the lecture. I can't even remember what I said now. Uh, I listened to all 150 of the Psalms performed by four beautiful choirs. And my wife and I just found it an overwhelming experience. I'm not a religious person, but I, so my starting question was, why am I so blown away by these beautiful words and the beautiful music, and why did it feel consoling, or at least comforting? And there's a distinction between comfort and consolation. Um, comfort, you know, doesn't have to give you a reason to go on. Consolation, definitely, you're about, it's about the business of giving you a reason to go on with your, your life. And um, so I backed into consolation, and then began to find it everywhere I looked and obviously there's a personal thing here I, I i've i've known moderate amounts of defeat or unhappiness in my life nothing special nothing even very interesting but it has i have had sought i have sought consolation in my life and so i thought i i wanted to find out um what these traditions of consolation were and i began on a search and it continued for four years and I love doing it. It's, it's interesting that you use the word tradition because what strikes you when you read this book is that it's really a project of self-knowledge that works through engaging with the lives of others. Um, what is the place of the human tradition of consolation in your thinking about this topic? Why are you reaching back in our presentist age where people are skeptical at best of history, um, you know, hold it in contempt at worst, why have you reached back into the past for this kind of project of self-knowledge? Well, I'm a historian. Uh, I mean, it, it's I'm, I'm stuck with how I how I think, and I, I I think you can understand the present without historical context and knowledge. And I I think that um, we've told ourselves a story about modernity that I just think is false, which is that. We're in a completely unprecedented new situation. Modernity is a break from anything going on in the past. Um, and therefore we're kind of orphaned and homeless in the 21st century. I just find all that kind of tiresome cliche mm. because if you look at, you know, um, 
Marcus Aurelius, or you look at Cicero, or you look at Boethius, the, the people I recover or talk about in these books, they're speaking directly to us. The Psalms are speaking directly to us. There's no, you know, the idea that we're cut off from these traditions because of the unprecedented character of modernity and digital media and all this, it just seems to me false. And, and so I just wanted to say, forget about it. Look, just don't orphan yourself. Don't orphan yourself from the past. Of course, the past is another country. Of course, it's hard to understand part of what the book is about is trying to recreate the context in which these great figures sought consolation. Why were they in the distress that caused them to write these works? What was the historical circumstances that shaped their writing? I can do that for people, but um, <clears throat> I'm not sure I can shake this idea that, you know, forget about the past because we're in an absolutely unprecedented situation. That's just, it seems to me, a cliche, and you bang away at it as best you can. Have you found, Professor, that by engaging with these people in their lives, and we're going to get to some of them soon, but do you think there is an underlying human nature at work here? Do you think that basically in most times and different epochs, we are the same in how we feel and long and suffer defeat? What do you think about that? <clears throat> I don't think there's any question that there's a deep abiding continuity in human experience back to the earliest recorded um, uh, notations on, you know, on, on paper, on papyrus, and the Psalms are an example of that. Um, my sources are European, but you can do the absolutely the same thing with any human tradition, going back to the roots of Chinese culture or Muslim culture. I, I make no claim that there's one royal road and it's the tradition I've exhumed. The thing I, I do think is that um, human experience is continuous. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know about human nature. I, I think human nature is semi-stable over long periods of time, but we have no grasp about, about this. I just see everything historically, and I see um, this enduring capacity of the past to speak to the present, and the present to find inspiration and comfort from the past. Mm -hmm. And that, it seems to me, is a very consoling message in itself. The whole book is designed to say, you're not alone. That's what it's trying to say over and over again. And I think that's important uh, because the worst part of depression, the worst part of loss, the worst part of grief is the feeling of solitude. And, and we relieve the solitude in the present by seeking comfort us. But I'm also suggesting there's another thing, which is reach to the books on your shelves and Read these people who've been in the same situation you've been and try and figure out whether there's anything they're saying to you that can help you get through till to tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah. Maybe let's start with some of them then. Let's. Sure. This book is in part an intellectual history of the, I guess, the experience of consolation, to use that word. And you start with religious traditions. Um, and you're very clear that religious traditions should and ought to be read as, as human traditions, um, you know, kind of fabrics of meaning that we can enter into and use to grapple with our own inner lives. One of the religious traditions or figures you examine is Job and the book of Job. And Job's in this really, you know, paradoxical situation where he finds himself tested by a God trying to test his faith, a faith that Job holds onto. And at the same time, Job has this very human demand for recognition, to be seen as God, as a person of integrity. When I read this chapter, I was completely confused about how one could do both and. Um, could you please shed some light on, on Job's contradiction and what it says about us as a human race? Well, I'll tell you, um, writing the Job chapter turned out to be the most difficult part of the whole book, I, mm. I, because this is a monstrous story. This is a terrible story. Mm. Uh, this is an image of a God who actually doesn't test the faith of Job. He tortures Job, yeah. right? He tortures Job on a whim because the devil or this Satan figure says, come on, just 
try this guy's faith. And so Job, who starts the story in the plenitude of good fortune, is then afflicted with plague and the death of his children and his barns burned down and he's, you know, and so it, the more you think about it, the more you realize that Job is a deep, one of the most profound reflections ever on the pure malignity of fate, the pure mm. horror that can happen to people. Um, and therefore it's, it's perfectly contemporary. I mean, there are Job's all over the world right now, right now, as we, there's a Job sitting in a small village in Afghanistan watching his children starve. I mean, you know, it's not hard to find Job in the 21st century. And that Job in the 21st century and in the Bible is saying, why are you doing this to me? I've been faithful. I believed in you. Why are you doing this? And um, uh, this moment where you seek to explain why fate is the way it is, is I think at the root of consolation as a, as a human process. Uh, what is particular about human beings is this demand for meaning, this demand for an explanation. And so Job is a magnificent figure because at one point um, he, he, he stands up kind of in rags covered in sores and basically shakes his fist at the sky and says to God, I've kept faith. Why haven't you kept faith with me? And then astoundingly, God replies out of the whirlwind saying, who are you? Why do you presume to understand my what I have in store for you? You're just a little tiny little figure in the sky on the ground there. I and you know I created the world, you know, and so stop asking me for meanings. I do what I want. Um, and but the interesting thing in the story is that God recognizes Job in some crucial way. Job then says, "Okay." I understand this is too big for me to understand, but God gives him recognition for the act of asking, why me? And mm. that I think is a crucial moment in, in the Western tradition of consolation, because instead of mutely experiencing suffering, we constantly ask, why me? Why are you doing this? Why has this happened to me? And seeking from our friends and from our colleagues and from our traditions and from our holy books, explanations. And that's where I think the impulse for consolation uh, uh, comes from. And uh, Job is eventually consoled very mysteriously um, because God decides to restore him to his fortune. And he dies uh, old and old in, in years because mysteriously God decides to to um, to reverse course. And I think one of the messages there is uh, that you can take in contemporary life is the wrong question to ask when you experience great misfortune or grief. The wrong question to ask is, why me? Mm. The right question to ask is, what do I do now? How do I get out of this? How do I find hope to go on? Um, so that's that's a reading of Job. But look, people have been trying to figure out what Job is all about for 2,000 years. And I'm just joining a long queue of people baffled by wisdom, which we can barely understand. It's, it's very interesting because when I read that chapter, I thought of the Gita and the Indian tradition um, where the great warrior Arjuna is on the battlefield and has to rise up against his gurus and his family. And the god Krishna descends and to an Arjuna who is skeptical and doesn't want to fight the other side, he says, they're my gurus. I love those people. And Krishna says the deity, the expression of the deity, just rise up and do your duty. These circumstances were entangled for you long before you got here. Have the integrity that you ought to have and be the thing that you ought to be. Like Job and take recognition, demand recognition for your suffering. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's another wonderful um, no. parallel there to show how this human tradition, it, it's this experience, this common experience, isn't it? No, no. On, on that, yeah, on that point, um, it would be wonderful if you could read for us an extract for, from a psalm, Professor. The psalms are these kind of great songs of longing that are mixed in with both dark and light. 
um, and they themselves, I guess, capture our experience. It would be wonderful if you could just set the stage um, with a reading of one of them before we ask a question about music. Well, I, I, I don't have a very imaginative choice, but I'll just read it. Wonderful. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Mm. To me, that's almost, it's a song that is coming from a place of suffering where someone is trying to almost will into existence um, a better experience of being in the world. How is longing working in that, in that poem, in that song, in that tradition? What does that teach us about human longing? Well, I, I think the first thing about that famous psalm is that it knows what we need consolation for. Mm. This unforgettable image of walking through the valley of the shadow of death is one of the greatest images in literature of what it is to feel fear of death. And, and so the reason psalms have consoled people for millennia has they know what we need consolation for. And then they have a wonderful image of what it is to be consoled, is that you feel the presence of a protector. Um, and you have this sense of a destination. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That sense that you'll be safe, you'll be secure, you will come through the valley to a place of safety and hope. And, and even if you don't believe in the religious premise, the images here are so strong. They convey what it is to, need to be afraid, and they convey what it is to be safe and secure. And um, so they have worked on us uh, for, uh, for millennia. Now, there are people who say to me, come on, you can't really derive consolation from Psalm 23 unless you actually believe there is a God and that there is a house of the Lord and that you will be taken up to that place. And I just respectfully disagree. I don't, I don't see why I need to pass some test of faith before I can read the Psalms. I, you know, the, I can read the Psalms any way I like. And I derive comfort and consolation from them, despite the fact that I've had a quarrel with, you know, the divine hypothesis since I read Hume at the age of 18 in second year university. And, and so, and, and, and it leads me to be very respectful of these religious traditions because they are such powerful collections of human wisdom and human experience. And I just think it's, I don't think our societies are as secular as they pretend, A. I think when we lose someone, we always end up in a temple or a synagogue or a mosque or a church, you know, to bury them because we don't know where else to go. And secondly, all of this massive religious tradition is behind us, and it seems crazy not to use it. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's, that's how I see it. But I see them, I see the Psalms as a human creation. We don't know who they are. We don't know who wrote them, but they are part of our human tradition and we Mm. should use them. Mm. Because they're a declaration of solidarity in the dark and and that's kind of what is so noble about it. Um, It it might be because I'm speaking to a prominent Canadian, but another prominent Canadian, Leonard Cohen, you know, in Hallelujah. And even though it all went wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of Song with nothing on my tongue but Hallelujah. That's David speaking in that song. There you go. There you go. It's, it's, it's Job's demand for recognition and throwing it all out and saying, Here's my here's my solidarity. <laughs> yeah. If we if we follow the, the chain of intellectual history, then um, some of the figures in your book, Professor, are 
grappling with religious themes, I guess, but in the realm of politics, you know, we start to consider justice as this human responsibility that we might after paradise be responsible for creating either heaven on earth or a state that is, you know, not totally insufferable. Um, two characters who interestingly go together in this book are Lincoln and Karl Marx. Um, and I think it might be interesting to compare the way that they think about consolation. You make this really interesting insight in the book. You say that Karl Marx, there's a humanist Marx at work who is longing for a paradise beyond consolation. What was Marx, see, uh, Marx seeking when he said that he wanted to get beyond consolation? And why did he think of religion as this kind of heart of a heartless world? I think if you go back to the young Marx, the Marx who's just married, he's in love, he's just had his first child, he's in Paris in 1843 and four, he's meeting, you know, heroic artisan radicals. He's in a state of intoxication because Paris is the capital of revolutionary Europe. And what is, I think, tremendously interesting about Marx is that much more of his vision of revolution and vision of a post-revolutionary society derives from his encounter with religion. He calls the heartless. In other words, skepticism. He understands the longer being expressed by religious belief. The, um, the oppressed. Uh, he sees poor working people who cross themselves and go to church on Sunday, have a yearning to be living in a world beyond suffering and sorrow and pain and death. And he, he gets that mm. in a way that many of the more callow 18th century critics of religion don't. And that makes him understand that if he's going to create a revolutionary society, he has to offer those people something that is a credible substitute for the comfort that they derive from, from going to church. Um, and, and I think that's a, Marx's revolutionary theory is worked through a critique of religion. He says somewhere, you know, the the beginning of all critique is the critique of religion, by which he means you can't get a politics unless you understand the longings that religion is speaking to. And I think <laughs> that is a um, that is an insight valid in traditions that um, are not Marxist at all, including including my own. So that's where it comes from. But it then leads him to a place, a, a utopian place in which I think he imagines um, will, beyond, will be, be beyond money, will be beyond exploitation, will be beyond alienation, we will be beyond um, uh, the division of labor, will be after the revolution and after we've defeated all our enemies, will, and will be beyond scarcity because we'll use the abundance of the modern economy. And that's another great thing about Marx. He, he thinks that capitalism has this incredible capacity to lift everybody out of poverty. Um, were it not for the wicked distributional consequences of, of capitalism. But if we could use harness all of this and get beyond it, we could get to a world which wouldn't need consolation at all. We wouldn't need to be consoled. We'd be in a perfectly just world. We'd have enough to eat. As we get older, we would, you know, meet our fate with, without repining because we'd arrived at our natural span. Uh, we wouldn't be oppressed by anybody. Politics would have been replaced by the administration of things. It's an incredibly utopian vision, but it and it's paradise on earth. And that's why you don't need consolation because you have paradise here on earth. And, and you have to take the Marxian dream very, very seriously because people fought and died for it for 150 years, right up until the, the eventual decline and fall and collapse of 
official Marxism in the 60s and 70s. And I don't, I think the disgrace of Marxism is terminal in the sense that just too many people were slaughtered to bring this dream to being. But if you go back to 1843 and four, you can see the full power of it. And it seems to me essentially a religious, a, a religious dream of deliverance from history, deliverance from pain, deliverance from suffering. And, and I think that dream is both extraordinarily beautiful and fantastically dangerous. And so that's why I wanted to write about it. Because I think to, to, to round it off, uh, Marx wants an escape from tragedy. And I, I think there is no escape from tragedy and human experience. I don't mean that in kind of heavy, portentous way. I just mean, you know, death, pain, suffering, failure, just go with the, the, the human experience. They're not errors. They're not mistakes. They're not design faults that we could correct if we just had better social engineering. They're built into the human experience. And attempts to, 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 to create a world beyond tragedy are dangerous because they don't they simply don't acknowledge the reality of human life. Yeah, from this crooked stick, nothing straight was ever made. I mean, I know that you... Well, were... indeed, indeed, indeed. <laughs> that was Kant's way of saying, from the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made, which was the great inspiring phrase of Kant's that Isaiah Berlin yeah. made a, a, a mantra for his particular kind of liberalism. And I'm 100% signed up for that view of things. And it's entirely consistent too with, as I said before, on you know Burke's critique of revolution, this idea that you can't actually escape the human situation you're in. Um, you know things are going to be irreconcilable um, in some degree, which is interesting then, Professor, because to compare Marx with Lincoln, they're both working in the 19th century. Lincoln finds himself in the midst of the Civil War, um, and you know in 1865 he delivers the second inaugural, trying to lay the grounds for reconciliation, that is to get North and South to see themselves as a common people again. Part of that recognition at work behind that speech is to say, we can't move beyond a world um, that is actually going to challenge us. We can't move beyond a world in which consolation is possible. We have to work out a way to live with these things that, that are irreconcilable and find a way forward despite them. How does Blinken use the best traditions that he inherits, to use your phrase, to stay within the world in a way that Marx doesn't want to and try to create something redemptive and noble within it, despite it being, you know, a battlefield, literally. Well, he, the best traditions for, for Lincoln are the Psalms. Uh, Lincoln's own personal attitude towards religion has been debated for 150 years. Nobody quite knows. Um, but Lincoln understands one thing politically, which is that he's facing in March, 1865, the prospect of trying to govern a people who fought the bloodiest civil war in the history of the country, 800,000 people have died. Mm -hmm. And the thing he sees is that both sides think God was on their side. Mm -hmm. Both prayed to the same God, both believed in God, both believed that God would favor their side. <clears throat> and so, the task of reconciliation, he understands, is to get both sides to understand something that's very difficult, which is that they don't know, they actually do not know which side God was on. He uses the Psalms to say, uh, because the Psalms say, he, he uses them to say something odd, which is, you both believed, you both prayed to the same God. We cannot know in politics whether God is ever on our side. So it's a very, it uses religion to say politics is secular. Politics deals with people who have imperfect knowledge. They cannot claim that they know that God is on their side because that way fanaticism, bloodshed, and death lie. We have to live in a world in which we do not know what purpose God has for our suffering and for our conflicts. But that doesn't mean we don't know. And one thing that is a clear fact, which is both sides have bled. 
both sides have suffered. That they have in common. They both have widows and they both have orphans. So let us get together, it is the final sentences of, of the second inaugural. Let us comfort the widow and care for the orphan together mm. with malice towards none, you know, those famous and, words. And, and <clears throat> so I see this as an extremely powerful vindication of using religion to vindicate a purely secular politics. Because he wants to take religious certainty, religious fanaticism out of politics, so we can bind North and South together. And, and the, the consolation mm. that he directs is the consolation of simply understanding. Uh, you renounce the false consolation of believing God is on your side to embrace the true consolation of doing your duty, which is to care for those who suffered and died. And that is a common project that can unite North and South. And that seems to me, that's why it's the greatest speech since Pericles, because, and three weeks later, he's dead, by the way. So it's a tr deeply tragic speech. And had that vision of politics been adopted and had he led uh, reconstruction in the United States, um, the United States would be in a different place than it is today. Yeah, because he's saying we're all implicated in tragedy. So how dare we proclaim to be the ones with certainty on our side? It's very moving, yeah. very, very yeah. moving. Yeah. In thinking about politics then, um, you know, you are very interesting because you are both a thinker and a former politician. And I think you've written the best possible reflection, at least the one in the last 500 years that we've had on the collisions and synthesis between the two subjects and activities. Um, but one of the figures in your book is uh, Weber. And, you know, he wrote this essay, this gave this lecture, Politics as a Vocation. Why did he think of politics as a vocation? And how did that relate to consolation in your book? Well, it, you know, Weber is the great um, philosopher, analyst, thinker about the Protestant revolution. And he takes from these religious texts of the 16th century the idea of a calling and what he finds riveting about particularly the Lutheran idea of a calling is that this incredible sense that you could have that mm. God has blessed your calling. You choose to be a carpenter. You choose to be a painter. You choose to be a priest. And you have this sense flowing right through you that you've chosen a form of work which is pleasing to God. Not merely pleasing to God, but it'll take you to salvation. And so this sense of calling is, is um, that must, to feel that must be the most consoling thing on, on earth, you know, to feel I'm doing God's work. I am doing work that is pleasing in God's sight. And Weber's question then is, what do you do when you no longer believe in God? Mm. How do you sustain a sense of vocation and calling when you can no longer be sure that God has called you to it? And um, this produces, I, I think it's one of the most profound reflections um, about what it is to live in a post-Christian secular world. And um, as, as a result, um, he then has to think about how do you do politics in a post-Christian world? How do you, how do you, uh, what are your responsibilities? To whom should you display responsibility in a post-Christian world if you can't be certain that you're doing God's work? How do you frame your responsibilities as a political actor? And he gives a, a lecture to um, students in Munich in 1919, in January 1919, in the middle of the in Bavaria. I mean, you know, there are crowds surging through the streets. There are people fighting in the streets outside the lecture hall. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to guide students um, in a situation of rabid fanaticism. Mm -hmm. On the right, there are people like Hitler circulating in the streets. On the left, there are people who want to institute a communist republic in Bavaria. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to guide students who are being torn apart by these alternatives and trying to say... <clears throat> You've got to find 
um, a calling for politics. It gives you a firm sense of, of guidance between extremes, um, an ethics of responsibility, an ethics of pure conviction. You've got to find an ethics of responsibility and hold to it. And you've got to do it in a world in which you do not have the certainty of Christian faith. And that's your dilemma. And it's one of the greatest descriptions of what it is to be a responsible political agent in an era of politicized extremes. And so I teach it every year, every chance I get to students because it still seems blindingly relevant. In your own life, I mean, from reading Fire and Ashes and other things and hearing things that you've said, it, it seems to me that from a very early age, you had the calling for politics. I mean, this was something that you seem to have wanted to do since your 20s or perhaps even earlier. And then you became a writer and a thinker about politics and an historian. Um, but what's your relationship been to the political vocation, if you do feel that to be your vocation? Well, I, I think there's no doubt that, you know, from the age of, you know, 16 or 17, an ambitious, young, privileged, middle-class kid in Toronto <laughs> whose father was a Canadian public servant and had worked for many prime ministers, it, you know, it, it went with the territory. Um, but let's be clear, that was a sense of privileged entitlement to a life in politics, which is very different from a vocation for politics. Um, it's taken me a lifetime to understand that a vocation for politics means an implacable determination to um, be a responsible political agent who serves not merely your own ambition, there's nothing wrong with ambition, but also clearly wants to serve other people. Mm. You know, as I've said, you know, if you go into politics, you've got to know who you do politics for. And 90% of the people who do politics do politics for themselves. And I don't exclude myself. I did it entirely for myself. But when you get in the arena, you discover ineluctably, you can't just do it for yourself. You, If you're going to be elected, you've got to persuade somebody that you're doing it for them. Mm -hmm. And that that's how democracy works. And that's one of the things that makes democracy uh, wonderful, because at its best, it's a discipline that forces responsibility away from yourself towards other, other people. And the vocation comes from a sense that you're doing this to make your country a better place or help a few people out to live less difficult lives. And, and um, um, so I, I, I think then there's another aspect to politics as a vocation, which is, are you any good at it? Are you cut out for it? And I you know, then discovered that I had some of the skills for politics, but lacked other of the skills. And um, so it turned out, possibly not to be my vocation after all. But I, I did understand in principle mm. what politics as a vocation should look like. I just don't think I was up to it uh, at, the, at the end. And I don't feel tragic or sad about it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in fact, on the contrary, extremely glad that I did it. Mm. You don't want to get to the end of your life saying, God, I should have should have put my hat in the ring and I didn't have the guts to do it. I did it. I did it. I fought three elections, one, two, and lost the third one badly. But I, I have zero. Um, I mean, I have the only regrets I have is that I didn't do it better. I don't have regrets about doing it at all. In fact, I'm delighted I did it. Yeah. It's really interesting because many of the figures in On Consolation are thinkers who went into politics. And, you know, they were normally caught up on these kind of major, I guess, existential uh, challenges of their time. Cicero's facing the rapid decline of the Republic. Weber's, you know, writing before the 1920s and the kind of in the midst of that nationalist tension. Um, Montaigne was mayor of Bordeaux, was it? Or, or some, some, some. Oh. Um, and then, you know, all of these figures from, from Edmund Burke, even to Abraham Lincoln, who was also a thinker, and Basla Pavel is a classic example. You note in Fire and Ashes that, these people who often face defeat in the active realm of politics, they are the ones that go on to contribute to political thought. Um, how do you think that works? Do you think they have a different temperament to say, you know, a Churchill or an FDR, someone who's more of a kind of politician first and foremost? Um, or is it what they're seeing in their time and the way that they articulate what they're seeing? Why is it that those people produce these theoretical reflections that provide us with consolation? 
Well, it, you know, the great example of, of someone who is a failure in politics, who wrote brilliantly about politics is Machiavelli. Yeah. Machiavelli, you know, was in the center of the Florentine political system and, you know, eventually gets turfed out and writes the prince in a desperate attempt to get back in. But his reflections on it are sharpened and made much clearer by, by being outside. Um, and I think that, so failure, and the other thing is failure is a great teacher. Yeah. I mean, that's why life is difficult. You, you, um, you learn everything eventually, but you often learn it too late. And, and I think a lot of people um, learn what politics is and how to do it uh, in the process of defeat. I, and I think, but that's, I don't think that's specific to politicians. It's, it's specific mm -hmm. to life. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, the, and the lessons of failure are extremely useful. And, and then, you know, it, you want to pass those on to, to other people so they don't make the same stupid mistakes you did. And I think that impulse um, to turn failure into something useful and positive to others is one of the motives why <clears throat> failed politicians often make good theorists. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's that that's uh, you know that that that's one of the things that's going on. Yeah, and it's really clear as you've said. I mean, I think the way that you reflect on this is with incredible generosity and nobility. I do want to say that um, because it, it it makes in Fire and Ashes particularly um, for a form of reading that restores your faith in an odd way in politics and the political vocation. You know, you say that you emerge from politics with a greater respect for politicians and politics. I'm interested to hear, Professor, if you also emerged thinking about political thought in a different way. So when you would go and you read Burke now or you read Weber or you read Machiavelli, do you think that it's useful to spend the amount of time that you have with these thinkers so as to prepare you for life and active politics? Is there a relation there that's actually helpful or are they completely separate activities? Um, what do you think about that? I think that what I would, I, you know, I teach political theory um, and I, I read, I, I keep up to date as best I can, but I, I feel a growing impatience as a former politician at the abstractness and unreality of a great deal of political theory. Um, a lot of the great historical classics are very apposite and relevant, Machiavelli especially. I mean, Machiavelli really is useful in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a visceral way in, in, in the political cockpit. But a tremendous amount of political theory is ideal theory. I mean, uh, there, there's a, you know, I'm very divided about some like Rawls and Rawls's John Rawls's impact on liberal political theory because it there's a kind of it's noble it expresses absolutely brilliant insights about justice and fairness but it's very divorced from the actual business of doing politics and I think a Liberal, liberalism is enfeebled, I think, by an excess of theory about what liberalism ought to be, and much less about how you actually get there and get there consistent with your principles. Um, and, and I think that's just a, a, a problem. Um, one of the essays that... Um, I think goes against that trend that I love uh, teaching is an essay that not be, many people know by Isaiah Berlin called A Sense of Reality. <clears throat> because there, what, what um, Berlin is fascinated by is what is it that someone like Bismarck knows? What is the form of knowledge that a great politician has, or Roosevelt, a Bismarck, a Churchill, um, that is so very different from, you know, abstract philosophical knowledge. And, and I think that's a, an urgent question and an interesting one. What is it that Bismarck knows that everybody else doesn't know? 
And if we could get a better answer to that, we'd be we'd be better liberal politicians. Yeah. Um, so that that's yes, I, I think the experience of politics makes me somewhat more impatient with um, political philosophy. And I guess it's a question of where you look, um, which is partly probably the reason that Sir Isaiah Berlin moved to intellectual history, right? Because history throws you right in it, in all of the messiness, trying to work out how people like, you know, Cicero, I'm very conscious that he's on my shoulder right now, but, you know, thinking as a, as a political thinker in the midst of action, um, that's, would you, do you feel that way about history, that it can offer you that kind of concrete uh, messiness that you need, that philosophy does not? Yes, I, I, I think there's no, the reason I'm a historian is not simply that it's just a, you know, it's just where I started. It's also been reinforced by a sense that specific historical case studies of political action in real time are the most useful thing for you to study as a political theorist or as a potential political activist. It, it is only in the, because politics is, is about <laughs> governing in time, mm -hmm. reacting in time, dealing in time with radical unexpected contingency. Um, you know, we're, we're in the middle right now of a, the possibility of war in Europe. None of the political actors um, on the scene now, a real prospect of war in Europe, well, that's politics. That's what it really is. And, um, and we're savage about politicians because we often don't understand that. Yeah. We think politics is about applying, you know, selling a program to the people, enacting the program, keeping your promises. Fine. I, yes. But it's also reacting to absolute radical contingency. 9-11, you know, boom, you know, um, and now the war in Ukraine. Um, and, and history is terrific at teaching you that um, politics is about the management coping with the utterly unexpected. And, you know, and, and those are situations in which some people rise to the occasion temperamentally, they're at home in crisis, and other people just can't can't do it. Terrific, good people crack under that kind of pressure. And so, when when you asked, when I said much earlier that I ended up having more admiration for politicians after leaving politics than when I came in, it's partly because the people I ended up admiring were people who were good when it was very very tight. And this was a matter of temperament. It wasn't a matter of education. It wasn't a matter of their you know, their, their degrees, it was just, they were, they were the kind of people you wanted to have in a foxhole. At the end of the day. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's very, very interesting. Professor, if we can just read out a final extract, I'm, I'm conscious of time. Um, but there was, there was a paragraph in the book that the first time I read it, I probably had to reread it about 10 times because it just, <laughs> It set up a whole lot of things for me, um, and not just as a political thinker or reading about history, but I mean as a person. Um, and it, I think I'd be very grateful if you could read it for our, our listeners. It's on page 258 of On Consolation, starting with failure is a great teacher. Um, but I think this is something we all need to hear. Uh, if you could please uh, read it out, I'd be very grateful. <laughs> failure is a great teacher, and so too is aging. As I've grown older, at least one false consolation has dropped away. Of all the advantages that loving parents, class, race, education, and citizenship conferred on me, the most incorrigible entitlement was existential, that I was somehow special. I'd been given an all-access pass that gave me free passage through life. This was absurd, of course, but it was an illusion that sustained a great deal of what I tried to do. Failure and age gradually teach most of us otherwise. You shed any illusion of a special status that confers immunity from folly and misfortune and come to accept willingly or otherwise that you're like everyone else, prey to delusion, self-deception, and all the ills that flesh is heir to. You realize that the all-access pass will have to be handed in. 
and that in any case there's a door ahead that it will not open. It takes some time to accept the emergent sense of solidarity with the rest of humankind that begins to dawn when you do hand in that pass, when you realize that your previous liberal protestations of abstract solidarity had been so false, when it finally hits you that you're yoked together with all others in a common fate. But these realizations are an unavoidable part of getting older and they become a kind of consolation. You may not be special, but you do belong. This is not so bleak or so difficult to accept. It might even make you a little more attentive to the misfortunes and calamities of others and more alive to the ancient wisdom that has always been there to warn us not to be so vain and foolish. Would you want to live in a world beyond consolation? That's my final question. <laughs> well, Jack, I don't think it's possible. I, I, I don't. I, I never want to preach resignation, fatalism, giving up. I want to teach the opposite, which is to live in hope. But I don't think you can live in hope truthfully unless you've struggled with failure, with loss, with grief, with the things that are just part of our existence as human beings. And the people I respect most and admire most are, are those who have had some acquaintance with grief and loss and hardship because I feel they are my kin. I feel they're not above me. They're, they're with me going through this together. Um, so the book is trying to say, um, let's find a way to live in hope um, and live truthfully in the face of misfortune and grief and loss accepted as part of what it is to be alive and and accept i think also the the obligation to console others and consoling someone is the most difficult thing we ever have to do often words fail us completely mm. but if we can be with people stay with people help people put our arms around people um, and, and help them get through a difficult times, then we're doing one of the most important things that we can do for each other. And, um, and in the process, you know, vindicate uh, the beauty of life itself. Well, Professor, I want to let your word res resonate. Um, how moving and what a special contribution this book is, really. So thank you thank so you. much for it and for, for speaking with me today. This is a, an immense honour for me. I'm so grateful. Well, thank you, Jack. Thank you for reaching out. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Good luck. Thank you so much.